Welcome to In Conversation, a series of captivating and insightful dialogues with leading writers, artists, and spiritual teachers. In Conversation is a production of Banyan Books and Sound. An oasis in Vancouver since 1970, Banyan is a gathering place of the world's wisdom and healing traditions. Come by for a visit or find us at banyan.com for live events, books, and more. This is Farah, the host of In Conversation, the podcast of Banyan Books and Sound. And I'm delighted to be here with Acharya Doug Duncan, who is a student and received lay ordination from Namjal Rinpoche in 1978. He is also a lineage holder in that tradition and is known for his direct, humorous, and compassionate style with his students. And also here is his co-teacher, Catherine Pawasarat, who is also received lay ordination from Namjal Rinpoche in 1998, and together they co-founded the Clear Sky Retreat Center in the Rockies of British Columbia. And we're delighted to have you here today to talk specifically about your book, From Wasteland to Pureland. Thank you. We're happy to be here. Happy to be here. So let's talk first about the title, Wasteland. In what ways do, does our modern society seem, um, is it a descriptor of our modern society and how is it connected to the spiritual path, the term wasteland? You want me to start? Mm, well, wasteland, I think, was first coined by T.S. Eliot back in the early 20th century. And it was a turbulent time, World War One. It probably was coined before World War Two, but that World War One was devastating. And I think people, uh, the biggest peace movement in the world ever, uh, uh, occurred at the end of the uh, 1800s. And I think everybody was thinking that we're entering an age, a golden age of peace and harmony. And then World War I hit. And that was a devastating war. And I, I think it just really discouraged people. So the wasteland uh, refers to broken dreams and expectations that aren't met. And uh, then by extension, our inability or our difficulties as people to get in touch with our inner core or our God realm spirit, as you were. And uh, so I think that was the idea with the Wasteland title. Yeah, it's always such a great reflection, Farah, to is it, is it the world or, or is it how we perceive the world or how we're feeling about the world? I think there's good arguments for both, but the only one that we have any control over is, is how we respond. So if the world feels like a wasteland, we, we need to look here to start finding the solution. And then Joseph Campbell came along, the, the famous mythologist, and he used the term wasteland to, to mirror the, the troubled spirit of a modern times in terms of integrating one's personal life with one's spiritual aspiration. So that's the general history of that term. I'd like to uh, dive a little bit deeper into whether, how our perception of the world colors um, or shapes, um, how important our perception is. So how is it that we can work with a our perception in order to 
contribute to a world that is more peaceful and harmonious? I think we have to start with the other part of the title, which is the Pure Land. And the, the Pure Land uh, refers to boot fields or Buddhist spaces, Buddha mind states. And whether you're a Buddhist or not is irrelevant. The, the important point is the defining characteristics of that state. And the Pure Land is a place where you're in a state of spacious, non-clinging clarity, which means therefore it's blissful. And therefore there are no inherent struggles or difficulties within that state. And this goes back to Catherine's point about the state you're in kind of determines in some way the world you're living in. So the first part of that would be recognizing that there is a pure land uh, in terms of the, the, the state you can be in, one can be in, and that it's accessible. Yes, to say the same thing, in, in other words, we've all had the experience when we're having a good day, when we feel good, everything goes our way. And when we feel crummy, everything just seems to get worse. Crummy thing piles on top of crummy thing. So this is basically a strategy. If we learn how to develop and establish and maintain a, a healthy, positive, loving state in the world, then good things naturally follow. We're sharing good things. We're attracting good things. We're certainly not denying that there are challenges in the world, but we're using the power of that positive state to help transform those challenges into something better. Now, the core issue- is it, This is the, basically the, the spiritual life in a nutshell. Yeah. And the core issue is really separation or aloneness or loneliness in the end. So we start out as in a unified field with the mother, our mother, and around two years of age, we start to develop an ego, which means we're now separate. So this idea of separation means the ego is on its own. It, the ego is on its own. We're alone. And all our troubles stem from there, how we cope with this aloneness. So the ego finds strategies and methods and ways to try to inert or protect or, or find safety or security in it, the fact that it's alone. And it fundamentally can't do it. It's not possible. The, the awakened state, the pure land state, transcends the ego. Doesn't mean the ego is not there, it just is a bigger picture. So if the ego is the cart, then the awakened mind is the horse. And if you have the horse in front of the cart, things work. And if you have the cart in front of the horse, things don't work so well. So one of the things that you mentioned is the importance of relationships. And... Um, how much relationships can be a part of our spiritual life in terms of bringing this state of spacious, non-clinging bliss into relationships that allow us to feel integrated in our lives. Is that right? Or, or should I, maybe I should ask this way, how important are relationships to spiritual life? This, is a, this brings up a very interesting subject between the difference between absolute truth and relative truth. In absolute truth, in the vast spaciousness of the Buddha field, there is no individual. There's a consciousness, and therefore there is no other or self. So from the point of view of the transcendental, there is neither self nor other, but there is consciousness. But we don't live every day, all day, in the absolute. We work, function, and live in the relative. How, how would you describe that? So there's neither relationship 
On the one hand, there are no relationships. On the other hand, it's all just one big relationship. relationship. It's, it's kind of relationship with totality. Right. So then in the relative world, we step it down to where we live and work and move. We want to be moving from the place of the totality, but we have to recognize that she has totality as a reference point. I have a totality as a reference point. You have totality as a reference point. So if we start from there, then all the little difficulties and movements and interactions between egos then gets put in its proper perspective. We can navigate those speed bumps. But without that sense of totality, then it's just ego here, ego here, ego here. Conflict is inevitable. What do you think? Yes. <laughs> um, every, everything in our life comes down to relationships in the end, unless we're a hermit. But even then, it's a tremendous amount of relationships with all of creation. Those become really profound. So, yes, relationships are central to our spiritual life and, and our existence. And in this modern day and age, we have so many important relationships that we never actually encounter, like with the people who grow our food, for example, or the people who make sure that um, we can pay for something with our credit card. And for the spiritual life, we want to do whatever we can to ensure that our relationships are supporting our practice and that we're supporting the practice and unfoldment of, of people in our lives. So as Doug Sensei was saying before, that's one of the ways that we try to keep the horse in front of the cart is to choose our relationships wisely to, and to cultivate relationships that, that also prioritize spiritual practice, whatever, however that person defines that. It takes many guises. Mm -hmm. I think the Muslims say salam alaikum, and I think the answer is alaikum salam. Apologies to all Muslims if I got it wrong. But I think basically it means I see the God in you, and they go, yeah, I see the God in you. That's a good start. For, That's a good start for a relationship. God bless you. How are you doing? So you mentioned spiritual practice, that in whatever shape or form that is, what are some of the spiritual practices that you found really helpful in your own path and that you describe in the book that people might want be interested in hearing about today? Gosh. Well, where to start? Where to start? Uh, we find that there's really no substitute for meditation. We find what we call the inner verse is, is as vast as the outer verse, the universe, One and verse. equally worthy of exploration. And uh, it's a joyful exploration. And, and it's hard to carve out that time and, and space for that meditation. So there are other practices that we can do, fortunately. For us, the path of karma yoga, which is sometimes called the path of service or the path of active meditation that has been a terrific vehicle for us and because we have a retreat center that's a optimal uh, framework for that practice another practice that we love is what we call the challenges where we're um, undertaking in a, in a semi-formal way to um, push our growth envelope and that helps us develop um, 
courage and a joyful sense of exploration and a sense of resilience in the face of life's challenges. Those challenges are very attractive because they can, they, they can be fun. So we talked about a weekly challenge. That would be like not having coffee one day or wearing a dress if you never wear a dress one day, male or female. Um, we have monthly challenges where things you don't get up to, you think, oh, I could do that, I could do that, but you just never get to it, like I don't go in bowling or not going bowling. And then the yearly challenge is something that's impossible, like something really difficult and really scary. With the codicil that it isn't uh, dangerous, it isn't damaging to person or property. And so these challenges are a very quick way to move it. A few of those have been um, somebody who was physically timid learned to scuba dive, jump out of a plane of with, with a parachute, of course. Mm -hmm. um, we dress, usually we, we dress it in terms of what we call body speech and mind, which is a body feelings and consciousness. And so there's body exercises we do to loosen up the blocks in the body. There are emotional feeling exercises we do to help uh, loosen whatever fears or monsters lurk in one's emotional world. And then there are uh, methods that we use to develop the cognitive and analytical abilities that might have been got stymied by bad teachers or bad schooling. So these are, and then of course, as Catherine says, meditation is the baseline. Karma yoga is the action line. And then uh, compassion, of course, is links it all together. It has to be compassion. There's so much um, in your answer there. I'm not sure where to go in terms of, there's so much we could talk about in terms of karma yoga, but I'm particularly... <laughs> yeah, I'm particularly curious about these challenges. So are these challenges that you have um, encouraged people to figure out themselves or as a group, you figure out what the weekly, monthly, and yearly challenges are? How does it work that way? It, it varies. Sometimes people ask us for uh, to give them suggestions on what their challenges are. Sometimes people know as soon as we mention challenge, they kind of go, oh, I know what I need to do. I've been putting it off for years. Um, other times, if a person has a community of practitioners, a sangha, they, they might um, give one another suggestions. So it really varies. One of the fun things about the challenges, it is fun to do with a uh, a community or with friends because um, we know one another so well and and our challenges for, what's a challenge for one person is really not at all for yes. another person and um, we can support one another and we can also help one another to not take ourselves so seriously so we mentioned that the parachuting for one person and there was a another person was said okay could, sensei, could you recommend a challenge for me? And, and he was a young, healthy guy and very adventurous. <laughs> sensei said to, to him, his challenge was to stay in a five-star hotel and float on an air mattress in the pool with a drink with an umbrella in it. <laughs> and it was amazing to watch the guy's face go, no. <laughs> so, um, and of course, a number of people standing there was like, I think in some ways, in some ways, Sarah, the best way to answer the question is what do you think would be weekly challenge? What's a habit that you do all the time that would be not, not impossible, but pretty easy to just not do it one day? 
that you do really regularly like do you jog or something uh i do yoga regularly um sometimes i eat chocolate daily so that would be hard for me to give it up there's your weekly challenge one day one day in the week don't have chocolate now next week different challenge maybe you maybe you wear earrings every day so next week one day no earrings so these are ways of just interfering with the habit patterns and 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 they're the easiest to do because yeah one day without chocolate i can do that so uh, we won't ask you about the yearly challenge. I'm not sure. Yeah. <laughs> but, the thing about well, chocolate. <laughs> you're, you're a woman, right? And we know that women, there's something in chocolate that women need. But I think one day you could survive. Mm -hmm. And then a monthly challenge would be something you know you could do, but you just never, ever get anything in mind, anything pops to mind. In terms of a monthly challenge, yeah. I think it would be hard for me to be without a computer or phone for a month. Well, no, you don't do this. Thank you for bringing that up. It's, you don't do it for a month. You just do it for one day. But it's something that you just never get to. So maybe you thought you would take a ballet lesson and you just never get to it. So you'd go take a, you'd go take a ballet lesson for one day. Mm -hmm. or, or, and then next month, next month you do something different. So these are one-offs. You, you're not working. This is really effective because they're one-offs. You just do it for one day. Mm -hmm. And the point of this is really to expand our sense of who, our, expand our identity and let go of the limitations that might block us from our fuller potential. Exactly. That's precisely. So let's talk a little bit about the path of karma yoga and the whole process of setting up the Clear Sky Retreat Center in the beautiful Rockies of British Columbia. What have been some of the challenges that the group and the two of you have faced in establishing a really sustainable, viable center? A lot of good questions in that one. I suppose the most obvious one is finances. The uh, spiritual people, uh, people with a spiritual orientation and people that are members of spiritual groups often would like to avoid the financial problems or the financial difficulties or even <laughs> kind of what you might call financial intelligence. My, there's an old thing maybe dating from, I don't know, in the 60s or something that money's dirty and that people with a lot of money are kind of dirty. There's something dirty about money. And of course, that's not inherent in money itself. That's just how you use it uh, or how you get it, perhaps. But the financial for sure is one. What's another one? Well, if I can just um, add to that, I think that for a lot of us spiritual practitioners, at some, at some point we had to make a conscious choice that I wanted, we wanted our lives to be about something besides, um, however we describe that, being the most successful at X or, or getting the best job or getting the biggest raise. <clears throat> so we had to make that choice to, in order to prioritize our spiritual practice. And as um, Doug Sensei indicated, sometimes we throw the baby out with the bathwater and um, lose a kind of financial maturity that's really necessary in the modern world. And so, as he said, that was one of our first big challenges was when we, that dawned on us. We, we sort of thought we'd buy a retreat center and, and just meditate to our heart's content. And then we realized that, that we'd undertaken this large financial and um, business. 
yeah, management responsibility that we weren't trained, that we didn't have any background in. So um, speaking of growing your sense of self, we had to become those people. And uh, we had kind of, as Sensei was indicating, we kind of previously decided we don't want to be those people. And then we said, okay, we need to learn to want to be those people. Another challenge. It's been is, a great challenge yeah. for us and a great learning. Yeah. So Another, just on that specific cool. topic, um, what are some lessons that you can share about, about that for so many practitioners who have that struggle because they do prioritize a spiritual life or they prioritize going on retreat? How can we have more balance in terms of prioritizing spiritual life and what you mentioned, financial intelligence or maturity. Should I go ahead? Sure. Um, well, I think the one way to look at it is everything is a measurement. That's what we do all day long. We take measurements, whether it's what we're going to do with our day or how we're going to spend our weekend. There's a tacit measurement system in everything we do. And money is no different. Money is a measurement system, and it's, it's a pretty good measurement system for value. Money tells us what we value. So do you need another $100, or do you need a day off? Do you need another $1,000, or do you need a vacation? And so the <clears throat> argumentation is you need, if you assign everything you do with a monetary value, then you can say, well, if I've wasted two hours arguing, with the parking attendant about my parking ticket. That's, that's two hours of my time. That's two hours of my, of my energy. So it's, so it's, a, it's, a, it's, long it's a long argument. So the spiritual uh, path is to use your energy efficiently and, and most productively for where you want to be and what state you want to be. So if you see it as assigned to an economic value that my time is money, if I spend an hour in bliss, clarity, and non-clinging awareness, my return on my investment is huge. I'm in a really good state. Mm -hmm. But if I spend an hour talking about that person south of the border who runs the country, and I get into a negative <laughs> state and I get all weirdo, then, then that's a drain. That's a huge drain on your energy system. So if you do it that way, then you go, okay, I got to balance my job, which provides me with real money. And I got to balance everything else in my life in terms of whether or not it's a good investment in my time and energy. Yeah, that's been a helpful way for us to frame it, for sure. I, I think also that many of us, well, we know that capitalism and consumerism have a lot of downsides, that they're not perfect, and I think a lot of us are looking for something better. And I think many, many of us would like to spend our money and make our money in beautiful, wholesome ways. And, and theoretically, of course, this is entirely possible. So for me, it's been a really fun challenge to figure out how to do that. So, and that shows up in, in every stage of, of the process of generating revenue or um, spending or investing our money. How, how can we do this in such a way that it actually feels good to the parties involved? So that may be how we write our website content is a big one. The interface on, on Eventbrite, how do we, you know, we can say pay here or we can turn it into a kind of invitation. And uh, 
there aren't a lot of um, roadmaps. There's a, a growing number thanks to social finance and things like sacred economics. And uh, it's, it's a great area of exploration. Certainly you guys are pioneers in that in terms of finding wholesome ways to use money as a wholesome vehicle. I hope so. I, I would like not to be a pioneer. <laughs> yeah, really. The I more, would, the merrier. For I sure. would like to be just in the mainstream. <laughs> everybody kind of recognizing yeah. what is valuable. We invented a, a koan for this one. What measure measures the measures measure, which is a fancy way of saying everything we do is a measurement, and how we measure determines uh, what, and how we measure determines where our state is. So if you kind of go, okay, well, I have this moment. What measurement am I going to make? I'm going to choose what? Anger, ill will, resentment. I'm going to choose wealth or poverty. I'm going to choose joy or sadness. Then it becomes very clear. Mm -hmm. If you choose wealth, generosity, loving kindness, compassion, you choose it this time, you choose it the next time, you choose it the next time, what's going to happen to your life? People are going to want to be around you. Good things will happen. So you mentioned something that I'd like to take a detour on and maybe we'll come back to some of the other challenges and that is the distraction that the political realm can be in terms of social media, in terms of news, in terms of discussions with people. How um, can people who really would like to contribute to a positive world avoid getting entangled in these political debates and discussions that don't seem to be a positive use of our life energy? Well, that's a great question. Yeah, I, I find that personally very challenging because I am struggling to find a source of, of news that I don't find toxic. Um, I'm still looking at um, that that phenomenon that you're describing, I think, if, from my point of view, has really filtered the way that news is, is reported. Mm -hmm. And that, that makes it challenging to participate in the democratic process. Right now, I'm trying to see and currently that's not for me, political. Um, I, I look forward, though, when, when that's also part of the equation for spiritual practitioners. The, the ego, because we go back to the ego in a way, the ego is separate. It, it starts around, as we said, around two years of age. And it's, because it's separate, it's totally focused around objects. So our attention is always going to the object and the outer object, because as very small children, our world is obsessed with the outer object, what's happening in our world, including the relationship between myself and mother. So often our attention goes to the outer, to the outer, the outer, thinking that if we fix the outer, we can fix the split in our own being of that sense of separation. And our argumentation is you have to, so you have to, you have to heal the split of separation in your own being. And then that gives you the platform to affect change in the outer that reflects, as Catherine says, mm -hmm. the change you want to see in the world rather than getting caught in the argument against the negative. So this takes a fair bit of discipline 
and a fair bit of strong, willful intention to focus on that which unifies us, that which produces compassion, clarity, and not get caught up over and over again in the negative dialogue because they're not ending. So be the change you want to see in the world and let the world take care of itself a bit. So I think there's an old expression which is think locally and no, act, think globally and act locally. So I think that also applies to the ego, you know? Uh, think about the world and start with yourself. Think, think about the world and start with yourself. Mm -hmm. And one by one, two by two, four by four, eight by eight, 16 by 16. Yes, I, I recently read a quote and it was, wisdom is not engaging in ignorance. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Which uh, for me is a great reminder of that phenomena of um, paying attention to healing that split, which I think is so fundamental. Yep. So let's get back on track. Um, one more of the challenges that you overcame and have um, insights from in terms of setting up this center and, and finding a way for it to be sustainable and viable and Good contribute memory. to a positive world. Good memory. Our other, I think Catherine might agree, our other big challenge that comes to my mind anyway is community. And uh, we all like the idea of community, but really when you get right down to it, most of us aren't raised to live in one. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. What we call a community is a bunch of nuclear families living side by side who maybe get together for a block party or a picnic. But, but fundamentally, we leave, live very kind of isolated lives, and, and especially now with the internet and with the added thing of labor mobility, where people are moving all over the place, jobs, you, your sense of community is, is challenged. And from our point of view, a community is something that you kind of live and work and share in basically all year long and uh, all day long to some degrees. So we're not used to living in kind of that tribal um, hunter-gatherer kind of community anymore. We're kind of isolated by the fences of agricultural and industry and now commerce. So learning to live in community was a big issue because we didn't have to, we don't get trained in school. At least when I was in school, nobody trained you how to communicate or work with other people or relationships. You could just, that wasn't on the uh, curriculum. Yeah, that was a big surprise to us for sure when we realized that we didn't actually have the skills to live and work and practice in community and that we needed to, you know, kind of learn them but kind of invent them for ourselves as well. And then, of, of course, it's a retreat center, so people come to do retreats. And in that sense, for many people, the community is a, a, a visit, right, rather than residential. And for other people, it's residential. So setting, learning how to set up the center where we could invite people into our community and um, help them transition away from the community ag again and in a way that, that was um, loving and mutually supportive and, and seamless, that's, that's been a really interesting journey and, and it's an ongoing process. There's an emotional side to that and, uh, and a, it's just so that more people can be part of our family, of our community, and there's also a very practical side to it. How can somebody arrive and, 
you know, know where to go and know what to do and know why, because we often like to know why we're doing what we're doing mm -hmm. and, uh, and have that be a, a learning journey and part of the spiritual practice. Do you feel after all these learnings and with the length of time you've been on the path that you are living in a pure land? <laughs> Good question. <laughs> yeah. Again, I think we have to make a distinguishment, distinction, distinction between relative and absolute. So on absolute terms, yes, I, I live in a pure land. In relative terms, it depends on the day. <laughs> it depends on the good day. Yes. It depends on what's Not coming. It depends <laughs> what's coming down. But the the, the 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 practice or the discipline is is learning how to access the pure land, even while you're up to your neck in alligators in the wasteland. Yeah, that's right. Uh, as somebody said once, it's hard to remember that your intention was to drain the swamp when you're up to your neck in alligators. But in fact, that's exactly what the spiritual life and the community life is training one to do. Mm -hmm. That even death and uh, illness and devastating losses can be made, maintained or moved from a place of blissful, clear, non-clean. Doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. It just means you don't have to be subject to the hurt. Yeah, like like um, Sensei saying, in the that's really what the spiritual practice is all about, and uh, being able to walk our talk and and demonstrate our practice and demonstrate certainly to ourselves. You know, I need to know that this practice is is working for myself to be able to continue to undertake this practice and I, I also need to be able to demonstrate it to other people because in this people quite naturally ask you know why should I meditate why should I undertake this practice why should I be at your center and people aren't um, shy they'll challenge us on you know why we do things a particular way or what our values are and um, that that really challenges us to be able to answer all those questions in a way that's inspiring to other people so it is a great exercise. It is a great exercise in really learning to walk our talk. This becomes even more re relevant when we go back to your question from earlier, which is with such a focus on the negative and mm -hmm. such a focus on the critical, uh, people uh, are conditioned or programmed by the news and life to, to uh, kind of go to the negative or go to the critical over and over again. So it's it's a real takes real uh, focus to keep the horse right where it belongs. Mm -hmm. But you can do it. It's doable. We can. So we started with mentioning the book. You know, what is your highest aspiration? You know, in Buddhism, there's a lot about aspiration. And what is your highest aspiration for how the book will be received and the impact that it'll have? Do you want to go first? Oh, no, I need to think about this one. So well, I hope, it, I hope it gets a lot of people arguing and, mm -hmm. and raising questions and debating and kind of, I do, what do you mean by that? But, so if it raises question and if it stirs debate and discussion and question, I think it's done what I would like it to do. Because of course, only by 
argument, debate, discussion in Pureland, do you find out what works and what doesn't? Mm -hmm. so, I hope it's red, <laughs> but you know. Our, our teaching has, has been um, quite a itinerant one. We have traveled a lot. Um, our teacher, Namjal Rinpoche, traveled a lot, taught a lot while traveling, lived in several different countries. And partly because of that, we don't have a lot of, um, we don't have a lot of centers. We don't have a large volume of, of our teachings written down. And for me, it's been great to create this book as a kind of milestone, co-create this book as a kind of milestone and a reference point. And I hope it's the first of, of several and that it's, that it raises our own bar. Now, now we have to explore deeper. We have to explore further ourselves. And, and, and I hope these conversations that Doug Sensei is talking about um, spur us on to do that because awakening is, is a moving target. We're always awakening more and can awaken still more. And um, that's a beautiful thing. I look forward to that. The ego likes answers, but the awakened mind likes better questions. <laughs> I want to say to you what I've enjoyed the most about the book is um, the integration. Like, um, I w just recently, before reading this book, read a, a translation of the Yoga Sutras, and the translation of Samadhi was integration. And what I like about this book is the integration of spiritual life with the realities of modern life which are so intertwined and uh, I felt it really keeps the essence of the pure teachings and also finds a way to offer readers um, some of the dilemmas that modern spiritual practitioners face. Oh, yay. Great. Yay. <laughs> happy that, that, that you got that out of that. Is there any lasting words you'd like to say or anything in your heart you'd like to offer for people who might be watching this video podcast or listening? Well, I have to go back to my Zen training, which is a wake up. <laughs> Death comes quick and everything that you hang on to and everything you hold is going to go, including you. So if you can find that horse energy mind, the cart will die, but the horse lives on. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, I think I'm saying the same thing in different words. Um, carry on, practice diligently, and the practice isn't always easy. But I can say that in my experience, it it does keep getting better and better, and that gives me a lot of hope because it feels like with the spiritual life feeling better, the bliss is feeling more integrated, that that must be benefiting more beings. And uh, that's, a, that's a nice feeling. You've been listening to In Conversation, a podcast of Banyan Books and Sound, Canada's spiritual and healing resource since 1970.